Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. So this morning, we're going to start here in Exodus 34. Here's the background real quick. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he gets the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and he comes down, and I don't think it worked like it did in the Mel Brooks movie, but he comes down with the Ten Commandments in his hands, and he sees the people of Israel, and they have gone wild. They're worshiping the golden calf. They, it's just a big mess. And Moses, in anger, frustration, throws the, the tablets down on the ground, and they break. They smash into a billion pieces. And so then God says, hey, Moses, you need to make some new ones. And so Moses himself has to chisel the second pair out himself. I wonder if that was part of like maybe, I don't, I don't think it was a punishment. It was part of certainly his consequence. The first pair, God did. The second pair, Moses had to chisel them out of the rock. Carries them up to the top of Mount Sinai again where he meets with the Lord. And that brings us to this setting right here. Exodus 34, verse 4. It says this, So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. I see in this a little snapshot of the way that God works, of the way that we experience him and we grow in our experience with him. God reveals himself, and then we respond. And he does that in the context of experiences, in the context of real life. Do you see this in Moses' life? He's, the people have gone wild, and it's a really bad scene. And, and Moses is in charge of leading these people, and, and this is a mess, and Moses doesn't know what to do, and he, and he breaks the first set of the Ten Commandments, and God brings him back up on the mountain again, and then God reveals himself to Moses, and God reveals himself how? As a compassionate, forgiving God, merciful, patient God, and Moses responds to that revelation of God by falling on his face in worship and doing what? Asking for forgiveness. 
Do you see how that worked? Moses is in a big mess. God reveals himself as a forgiving God. Moses responds by asking for forgiveness. And this is the way that it works in our lives. If we're, we're talking about experiencing God, this is exactly how it works. In the context of day-to-day -day stuff, you're going to work, family stuff, sometimes it blows up, sometimes it's smooth, but regardless of what's going on, it's always an opportunity to experience God. He's waiting to reveal himself in that moment for you to then respond to what he reveals about himself in that moment. Do you see how that works? And my friend, that is actually, that's like the principle this morning. That's where we're, that's what we're talking about today. Because this whole idea of experiencing God is not just something that's reserved for church services, uh, you know, or Christian conferences. Like God wants to move with you and for you to move with him in the context of everyday life. And whether it's a good time or a bad time, like God can still reveal himself, you can still experience him. And that's really incredibly freeing for you and for me, because now it's not about you and me always getting it right. Like the pressure's really off. As long as we keep our eyes on Jesus, we're looking to him. I'm just looking to him. And when I'm doing that, well, whether it succeeds or it fails, I'm setting myself up for a fresh experience with God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, It is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Who works in you? God. Who works in you? God. So God's the one doing the work, isn't he? It's not you and me. He's doing the work in you. See, what God is doing in you is actually more important than what God's trying to do through you. That God's first priority is actually you. It's really amazing. He, he's wanting to form your character, to shape your character, and he'll use the day-to-day -day stuff that goes on to do that. It's God at work in you. Can you trust him? That's a big question. Can I trust him? that what he's doing is good. Our memory verse for this week. So this is week two. Our memory verse for this week, it, last week was John 15. Remember that? John 15, five, or right, John? Now I'm doubting it. Yeah. This week, anyway, let's forget that. Moving on. This week's Bible verse is this. Psalms chapter 20, verse 7. Psalms 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God, Psalms 27. Let's just say that again. Let's read it out loud together, okay? Because we're going to, this is our memory verse, so let's uh, dig in a little bit. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. Who do we trust in? The name of the Lord our God. The one you trust in is your God. Your trust reveals your God. So now let's make this super personal and uncomfortable. Some trust in Biden and some trust in Trump, but we trust who? Some trust in their feelings 
and some trust in the facts, but we trust in who? The name of the Lord our God. Some trust in science, some trust in religions, but we trust in who? The name of the Lord our God. Who you trust in reveals your God because you always place your trust in God. And by the way, who you trust in will determine the quality of your life. Who or what you trust in. Psalms 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. See, not wanting is a byproduct of having the Lord as my shepherd. Who or what you trust in determines the quality of your life, and false gods can always be identified by the ugly fruit that comes as a result of their existence. So many people, for many people, politics has become a god. And look at the division that happens as a result. Do you see the ugly fruit of the false god of politics? For many people, their own feelings have become a god. And look at the confusion that happens as a result when feelings become your god. For many people, religions have become a false god. And do you see the hatred that comes as a result of that false god? More wars have been fought in the history of the world over religions than anything else. I'm always careful when I'm talking to people and they start arguing down that line. First of all, I agree with them. I'm like, you're absolutely right. A lot of awful lot of blood's been shed over religion. But let's not confuse religion with Jesus. Because Jesus is not religion. Two different things. And let me tell you, if you can forget religion and begin to look to Jesus, you'll discover he is an amazing, amazing person. How about science has become a false god? And do you see the fear that's come as a result of that? The simple point is this, that, that who I trust in, what I trust in, reveals my God. And false gods always bring about ugly fruit. And you can always identify the false god in your life by the ugly fruit in your life. And experiencing God, God, is about learning to trust him. It's about looking to him, leaning on him. And even when things don't go well, it might be a bumpy ride, but at least I'm enjoying the one with whom I'm riding. And see, because what God is doing in me is actually bigger than any work he wants to get done through me. It's amazing the good work that God is doing in your soul and mine. He's working to develop our character, to shape us and mold us and make us just like Jesus. That's what Romans chapter 8 says. God says he has a goal for you. He's predestined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, his own son. Like, that's God's goal. You say, where are you taking me, God? He's, that's where I'm taking you. I'm trying to make you just like Jesus. That's where he's going with this. When God first appeared to Abram, he says this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. He told Abram, I will make your name great. Now, I know, boy, I hear that 
as an American, and I think, sweet, I'm going to be famous and rich, and it's going to be fantastic, right? Don't you kind of hear it that way? But that's really not what God is. God's, God's comes to Abram, I will make your name great. But if you look at Abram's life, there's nothing about this guy that says he's great. And yet, and, and when he died, he died with barely, barely anything that God had promised him. There's no greatness in Abram's life when he passed away. And yet, this very day, nearly two-thirds of the world's population hail back to Abram. If you're a Muslim, if you're a Jew, if you're a Christian, you all trace your faith back to Abraham. Isn't that amazing? God says, I will make your name great. I will. So who did it? God did it. There's nothing about Abram that made his name great. All Abram did was say yes to God. That's all he ever did. And he didn't even do that perfectly. And God did everything else. The same is true for you and me. See, you and I just need to determine I'm not going to make my own name great. This is not about me. It's not about me making myself great. I'm just going to say yes to God. I'm just going to say yes to God. It's not about me being successful or being awesome or whatever. It's just I want to be obedient and faithful to what God's saying to do. That's it. And let God take care of the rest. If you've never read it, I would highly recommend the little book, A Tale of Three Kings. It's, only about, it's written by Gene Edwards. It's only about 100 pages long, and it reads like a story. So it's super easy to read, but it packs a, a powerful punch. And it's the story about three kings in the Bible, King Saul, King David, and then David's son, Absalom, who actually staged a coup against his dad and for a brief period of time was the king. Thus, you have a tale of three kings. Kings. And the story is, uh, you know, it's set in, in this biblical example, and it's a lesson about how God shapes our character. That's really what it's about. And about how your successes, how you respond to success and failure, how that actually reveals a lot about your own character. It's a terrific, very powerful little story. But when you meet King Saul in the Bible, he comes off as this pretty humble guy. You say, well, here's a guy, he's not even looking to be the king. He's not, he's not grasping for power at all. As a matter of fact, the first time you meet him, he's out in the middle of nowhere looking for his dad's lost donkey. And the prophet Samuel shows up in his life and says, hey, Saul, you're going to be king. And he anoints him as king. And Saul responds with this, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21. But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing? To translate, Saul is like saying this, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody, and I come from the boondocks. And you're saying, I'm going to be the king, like I'm the farthest thing from being a king. It's impossible for me to get from here to there. He, you know, you got the wrong guy, Samuel. Listen, just because you can't see the path does not mean God can't 
get you there. Remember, who is the one doing the work? God is. You're just saying yes. That's all, that's all you're doing. He's doing the work. Mary had no precedent for the virgin birth. Nobody had ever done that before or since. See? And yet what God plans to do, you see, is it often doesn't make sense to us. And we often have no way of knowing how he's going to get me from here to there. But yet we can trust that if he's in it, he will. So Saul comes off as this humble guy. He's out looking for his dad's donkey, and then he gets anointed king one day. And, and, and then finally the day comes, and the entire country shows up to crown him king. It's his coronation day. Big day. And they go looking for their new king. They're ready to put the crown on his head, and they can't find him. Can you imagine that? They lost their king on coronation day. And they, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 22 it says, so they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, look at this. Yes, he's hidden himself among the baggage. They ran and they brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. So here's Saul. He's this tall guy, tall, good-looking, handsome guy. And apparently... He doesn't really relish the opportunity to be the king because when they go to give him his crown, he's hiding in the baggage. And see, we might look at that and say, wow, what a humble guy. Like he's not grasping for power. Boy, that would make him the perfect king. But soon after becoming king, Saul's true character comes out. He oversteps his boundaries, and he led the burning of a sacrifice, which only the prophet was permitted to do. And then he caved into the peer pressure of his men, and he disobeyed God when they battled an enemy nation. And to make matters worse, Saul became jealous and threatened by the rise of a younger man named David. Threatened? Oh, very much. On multiple occasions, Saul tried to kill David, and in the process, at one time, he slaughtered an entire village of innocent priests in an effort to kill David. And you say, but, but I thought Saul was a humble guy. I thought he was this good guy. He didn't really want to be the king, and why would he do such terrible things? Actually, quite the opposite. And you couldn't see his true character until he became king. You see, the success revealed who he really was. It was his rise to power that revealed his character, and it was bad. Friends, they might look similar, but don't confuse humility with insecurity. Humility creates an environment where everyone can prosper. Insecurity creates an environment where only the leader can feel safe. Insecurity is deadly. It's deadly to families, deadly to marriages, deadly to churches, friendships, small groups, nations. 
An insecure person will always find ways to make themselves the center of attention to protect themselves. Insecure people manipulate others around them in order to make themselves feel more secure. Saul wasn't humble. He was insecure. And people couldn't see it until he was given authority. And then it came out. Meanwhile, David, remember David. Saul is jealous of David, and he's threatened by this young giant killer. The more influential David becomes, the more Saul hates him. Saul tried twice to kill David, and so David went on the run. And for about 13 years, David spends as a political fugitive in the desert, hiding in caves, staying away from Saul. Now, what you might not know is that the prophet Samuel had also anointed David as the king. So what you have is you have the incumbent king threatened by his successor trying to kill him. And some of David's darkest times were during those 13 years as he hid in the caves. We get a little glimpse into David's grief just by reading his journal. You can see it. It's called the book of Psalms. A lot of the Psalms are written by David during this time period in his life. Look what he says, Psalms 59 verse 3. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, O Lord. Psalm 69, verse 17, do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Psalms 86, verse 14, the arrogant are attacking me, O God. A band of ruthless men seek my life, men without regard for you. On and on and on it went. This is just a sample. David pouring out his angst before God as he's running from Saul. As David fled and as David hid, David also broke. He must have wondered if being anointed as the king was a cruel joke. Like, this is not how you treat a king. Hiding in caves, running in deserts, dodging arrows. That is not how <laughs> you, you train a king. And yet, the desert was God's program for shaping David's character. Fascinating. God broke him. God broke David in those caves. An anonymous poet writes it this way. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man, to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. The great British 
the great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he once said it this way, whenever God means to make a man great, he always first breaks him in pieces. God crushed David before he could crown David. And when David finally did become the king, you know what's cool? He never held onto the throne like it was his. In David's mind, the throne always belonged to God, and it was never his to hold on to. He trusted God that if God wants me to remain the king, great, and if not, great. I believe one of David's finest hours was many years later. He's now been king for a couple of decades, and his son Absalom is an adult, and his son Absalom staged a coup against his father and actually stole the throne for a short bit. David's response to this horrible incident, it tells you everything you need to know about the man. Everything you need to know about the man. Here's David. He hears the news. His son Absalom has amassed an army. His son Absalom has proclaimed himself to be the king. And now they're marching towards Jerusalem, and Absalom wants to take it over. What does David do? He fled Jerusalem. He left the capital city. Now, you can imagine, this is not just David, like, riding off on a donkey by himself. He's the king. And so this is a whole procession. You've got the king, you've got the royal court, you've got anyone associated with him. This is probably like a thousand people. This is a big procession of people that are making their way out of the city of Jerusalem. And as they do, David turns to the high priest, Zadok. And this is what we read, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 25 and 26. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. You see the heart of David? Do you see the difference between David and Saul? Here's Saul. His throne is threatened, and he murders innocent people in order to maintain his power. David, his power is threatened. He walks away, leaves it in God's hands. God, if you want me back, you'll have me back. And if not, then that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm leaving. Amazing. You see, when you have a calling you have a calling from God. I believe that. Each one of us does. You do have a calling from God. But if your character is lacking, it'll destroy that calling. And so God develops our character in order to match our calling. So if you feel like you haven't found it yet, if you feel like you're not there, wherever there is... I don't know where your there is, but wherever that is, perhaps the reason is this. God is preparing your character for that. You know, he, he doesn't need you. You know, we, we think, but God, I'm running out of time. <laughs> you know, but, but God, I'm not getting any younger. 
So, so Lord, if, if you're going to do this, do it quick, because, I mean, I can't, right? And that's, you know what that is? That's you, that's me, trying to figure out the details. Remember, I might not know how to go from here to there, but God does. My job is to say yes and be faithful here. Does this make sense? See, listen, age doesn't matter to God. Moses was 80 when God called him. 80. Connections. You go, but I'm not connected. I'm, I, how am I possibly going to? I need to work the network. Listen, connections don't matter to God. Esther was a slave when God, God made her a queen. You go, yeah, but I, I bet I'm going to have to go get a master's degree. I'm going to have to go get some education. I got into this. Hey, nothing wrong with education. But listen, education is not a hindrance. Amos was a shepherd when God called him to be a prophet to Israel. Do you see the pattern? Look at Noah built a boat without any water. Moses crossed the Red Sea without a bridge. Mary gave birth to the Messiah without a man. Do you, do you realize? Do you realize God has the power to do what God is determined to do in your life? Do you see that? My point is that God doesn't need you to have it all worked out. He's got it worked out. He wants you to trust him now. Like, yes, okay, God, you, you said you're in this. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to believe you for it. And I'm going to be faithful now, right now. And I'm going to be faithful to you. And in this moment, this is an opportunity for me to experience you, to know you, just like Moses did. When the whole thing blew up in his face, and Moses goes to God, and God says, Moses, I'm forgiving, I'm compassionate. And Moses says, oh, that's right. And he falls on his face, and he asks for forgiveness. You know, you see how this works? We look unto God. We just keep our eyes on him. And he wants to bring you and me to the place where it stops being all about me. Stops being all about how I've got to figure this out. And I begin to trust and walk with him. Walk with him. You hear that? Just walk with him. So are you ready? I want to invite you as we close this message this morning with a dangerous prayer. Are you ready to pray a dangerous prayer with me? The prayer is this. I put it up on the screen so that you're not surprised. God, break me until your glory is the only thing that matters to me. Whatever it is that you're doing, I want to be a part of it. Do what you need to do in order to prepare me for it. Amen. Can we pray this prayer together if you want? I'm not, I'm not no, no twisting of arms here. But if you feel led, please feel free to pray it with me. But God, break me until your glory is the only thing that truly matters to me. Whatever it is that you're doing, I want to be a part of it. Do what you need to do in order to prepare me for it. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.